So welcome, welcome here to the first Sonic Street Technologies session, number one, as part of the Amplify exhibition. And today we've got a series of conversations with Sydney Renegade party makers, and we're going to talk about uh, how sound system culture affects what they do, Sonic Street Technologies, uh, the kind of music uh, they're into, spreading across the airwaves and, of course, uh, in physical spaces like where we are right now here at Tinchets Gallery. And uh, in front of me right now, my name is um, Moses Eaton, and I'm uh, working as a researcher with the Sonic Street Technologies project that's uh, happening. Um, it's been coordinated from, from London, Goldsmiths University. Uh, Sydney University, University of Sydney is, is collaborating with that project, uh, investigating Australia's contribution to global sound system culture. So that's the focus of today's conversations. And uh, the first guest we have here is Peter Strong, uh, who's a multidisciplinary artist of many talents and many names, Oms Not Bombs, Vibe Tribe, Mashi P, Berlingua Organarchy, and uh, there will be a lot of other some other pseudonyms and, and projects that you've been involved in, yes? Welcome. Yes, hey, good to be here today. Yeah, good day, friend. What a great exhibition this is, um, looking into activism and sound and music and radio. Yeah, dig it. So, yeah, where, where to start? I mean, uh, at, uh, last night, um, Organic Sound System played at the opening, which was great. We brought my whole studio out. And we, we set up a little transmitter and we pumped the, the music from the, from the Honey Trap sound system through um, a little radio transmitter out to the Sunny Bins, which are wheelie bin sound systems. Um, that's one of the things that I'm quite busy with at the moment is a solar-powered um, sound system based around the idea of the wheelie bin sound system that's uh, got a fairly long history um, in Sydney and is a thing around the world. If you look online, it's one of those 13th monkey things. A lot of people come up with the idea that a trash bin is a good thing for a sound system if you want to wheel it around in a street and it can get knocked about. Um, we sort of made Sunny Bins uh, probably around 2009. Um, John Jacobs first made a, um, a wheelie bin sound system around 2000 and, and then in about 2008 there was a thing called Reclaim the Lanes in Sydney where everyone was invited to make their own sound systems and take them out into the street and it was sort of a a retreat from Reclaim the Streets. It was more about celebrating the laneways and graffiti art. And so that led to a bit of an explosion in creativity of making sound systems. And that's what, where Sunny Bins was born. Um, Sunny Bins um, was myself, Flat Max, and Greg Archer were the trio that kind of um, pushed, the, pushed these bins. And, um, and Greg Archer one, one found this solar panel that fit exactly on the lid of the bin. And that was what really cemented the idea and got interest with councils. So we'd made a couple of these solar powered sound system bins, uh, out of wheelie bins. And next minute, um, the councils were interested and they put through some money at it and we made it about 30 and we went out to councils around Sydney. Um, the bins were being used, got, people saw that they existed and so they came from this street, sort of illegal street party thing to actually a, a, bit, of a bit of a part of the furniture of council events in Sydney through the, through the, from about 2010 to, to, to now where City of Sydney Council regularly use them. Um, doing Parramatta Lanes next week um, with my skip sound system, which is a four-wheel skip, and it has poles sticking out of it with small bins on top, all solar-powered. Um, and then we've got a roving DJ who just, like, the idea of a roving DJ is ridiculous. You're somebody pushing a bin through the streets, playing music off a phone app. Um, and with the sunny bins and the Willy bin sound systems, um, starting off with like Reclaim the Streets and you know techno, hip-hop and conscious sort of music electronic spectrum. Often with the council um, gigs I find the, the, the Uberlinga style world music selection is really what hits the nail because it's celebrating multiculturalism. You get people coming up, oh this is music from my country and stuff so that's what I've got um, in line for Parramatta Lanes is a global beats, global bass, you know the electronic music meets folk, folk music from around the world and uh, you know, what it initially inspired me with sound systems was um, electronic music, the explosion of techno. But as, um, as the years went past, uh, I started, my ears started pricking up to the way different countries were, were using the uh, electronic production with their own music styles to create this beautiful um, selection of, of world music. Um, yeah. Thank you, Peter. This is Peter Strong you're listening to right now, uh, who's just told us, uh, I guess, uh, quite a succinct summary of some of his many achievements. 
and uh, the wheelie bin sound system, which uh, we will be talking to John Jacobs at 1 p.m. today to get to go a bit more in-depth um, what, uh, what uh, inspired the wheelie bin sound systems and that whole, um, their development. But um, I'm very interested to go into a more, bit more detail into, mm. into your, your um, role in, 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 out of all your creative endeavours. Um, mm. What does music mean to you? Because you obviously do visual art, you do printing, yeah. you do digital art, uh, but, but music is obviously a central thing. What does it know, mean amongst all of your creative yeah, outputs? Yeah, I mean, I've always just loved, you know, loved music. Um, you know, right from, I grew up in England, I came to Australia at 20 years old, and um, I was a heavy metal kid, kid at about 13, denim jacket, patches, motorhead and all that. But it was John Peel, the radio, BBC radio DJ, who started playing this amazing spectrum of music for like the Smiths and reggae and funk and all sorts of amazing tunes that really led to my diversity of sort of sound appreciation at sort of where I'm at today. So um, the late John Peel, I think, inspired a lot of people in the UK in the sort of late 80s, uh, mid to late 80s, and he's put out amazing Peel session vinyls and releases over the years of amazing bands, you know, from the Smiths to the Fall to Aswad, New Order. So um, going to UK festivals in 1980, from about 84 to 87, when I came to Australia in 87, I had this, 84 to 87, I went, I just sort of, derailed, I sort of, in England, uh, you know, I was at a boarding school, I was going to maybe join the army, and then I ran off to Stonehenge Festival one weekend and changed me forever. I found um, a flyer of Crass, literature by the band Crass, who were one of the one of the forces that actually made the Stonehenge Festival were members of Crass. And just reading, um, reading some of the literature just said, yeah, yeah, this is more like it. This is where it's at. And uh, you know, listening to the, the Clash and um, the Sandinista album in particular really r radicalized me. And um, so your music for me has always carried a message um, and it is a message of bringing people together. And coming to Australia in the early 90s, um, I found the Jellyheads Collective, who were like a punk, uh, an anarchist punk, similar to Crass. Um, bands like Tutti Parsi and um, Repeat Offenders um, were in this, this community-run warehouse in, um, in Chippendale. Um, they were putting on vegan nights, queer nights, um, punk bands. And then um, at the same time, the rave thing had started to hit. Hip-hop before rave, like Public Enemy, dub, On Your Sound System, and we started hearing this new type of music where you could cut and paste things into it and the message in the music. Uh, Gary Clayle at the Phoenician Club with his complete wall of subs was a big influence, I think, to a lot of the proto-techno crews in Sydney to realise the power of music. I think he was DJing off cassettes, mm -hmm. you know, and this was probably 91. Yeah, um, so, so you, you sort of, um, you, you started talk, telling us about how uh, you became inspired by John Peel, his mm. selection, which is... Yeah. I guess that sort of punk and post-punk yeah, era, yeah. especially. Mm. And uh, when you started, and then you've, you've, you've now started say, you know, telling us about cutting and pasting and, and being mm. part of techno collectives. So what was your first experience of music, like production? Mm. Uh, for me, I, I left England in 87, the year before the Summer of Love, which 88 was when the rave thing just made sense and it just clicked. I got to Australia in October 87, Horden Pavilion parties were happening, sort of house music, but what really got me in those days was Public Enemy. And with a Public Enemy, it, you know, it takes a nation of millions uh, album. The production, you could hear the cut and paste, and that inspired me to get a pair of old turn turntables. They weren't even pitch control, just old turn, and start experimenting with mixing music. And I was doing house, late 80s, I was doing house parties with a cut and paste sort of sound system, just out of bits and pieces and running and doing, the late 80s in Sydney, it was still Sydney was number one nightlife spot in the world. And not just clubs, but people's houses, mad parties. We lived in this place in Glebe. And we built a stage in the backyard. Thrash bands would play, like Monroe's Fur. Inside, we'd have a DJ playing. Uh, and this is before we even knew what Acid House and Techno was. We started to understand it and hear it on the radio. Ah, like at first I thought Public Enemy was Acid House. I didn't know. <laughs> and then I heard some radio show with, with, the, with, the, with the 303 sound in it. And yeah... And we started playing around with one of my first bands called The Sounds Anti-System in the early 90s. And then um, I met John Jacobs at an anti-war protest in Circular Quay. And he was playing all these beats, kind of on your sound, sort of dub and, and hip-hop beats with anti-war samples over the top. I thought, this is pretty good. And I, I expressed an interest and went after the band finished, started talking to John. And he said, join the band, you know. Next minute I was in Mahatma Propagandi and... Um, and we were playing at Jellyhead sometimes, you know, this sort of dub stuff. But, but it was pre, we, we still, we knew, 
Raven Asset House and that was happening, but we weren't going there yet until um, Cole, Cole Dimond and um, Jer Kaolin came back from Goa, having experienced the Goa parties in uh, maybe 92. And they said, this, we've, got to, we've got to do this. So we formed it. That's when Non Bossy Posse was formed, you know, this, uh, this sound sort of techno with still with a political sampling going on and and we, we at first we were not even using sequences we were just we had pitch bend on our akai samplers uh, with a matchstick in the pitch bend and we were matching beats by hand so it was very punk <laughs> Cole and jer were in um punk bands um in Jellyhead's punk stable so they had that punk spirit coming into it so yeah we so, so you were playing those um that like you weren't sequencing you were basically yeah at first we weren't sequencing I mean, it was pretty yeah. terrible but also at times it shone but other times it just collapsed into a mess, you know. But that was part of it, you know. Like the punk sort of said, it doesn't matter. Anyone can do it. You don't have to be perfect and seamless and, you know, so. And, and the, the other thing, yeah. beat, break beat salad, you know, where it's just like the beats are all out. And then we'd get it together. We'd stop. And we, even last night when we played, we had a bit of that. Although we're sequenced now. But, um, and, uh, so, yeah, Non Bossy Posse and Jellyheads were, were 92, 93. And Non Bossy Posse became the house band to Vibe Tribe parties, you know. And Vibe Tribe came out of Jellyheads. They started doing raves at the punk space. And then um, I think that space, we lost it. So started looking for any space to do a, do a party. So Sydney Park was the obvious contender in 1993. And Anarchist Picnic um, was the sort of cover of people gathering in the day. And then the sound system came in and we had an all-nighter. Police came in the morning, but they were fine. About 800 people, I reckon, through the night. Um, uh, DJs uh, um, played, I think um, Michael M.D., Ming D, Ming D played, um, Gemma, I believe, at that one, and Sydney Park, and there was uh, Icarus came and did a big fire show, and there was fire shows going off, and there was all sorts of people there, um, all different subcultures, hip-hop, you know, the rave, the queer scene, um, all, all coming together for that amazing thing. And then there was a series of um, successful... Sydney Park parties. Fundraiser was the next one, I think, in 94. Maybe there was two in 94. And then in 95, the big riot happened um, where somebody, some people from the UK came out, um, this guy called Gastro, and they, they built a big sound system with this guy Hendrix, who's still up in up northern New South. It was like a 10K rig, which is much bigger than we'd used before. So that brought the attention of the cops. Um, this is 95. There was beginning of mobile phones, so the, the network went out. It was like... A thousand people there, but then the police came. Um, not much negotiation was successful about what to do. We didn't mm. want to shut it down, so they bat and charged the dance floor. The crowd pushed back. Um, they, the crowd successfully resisted the cops advancing, pushing them back. But then the cops thought, we'll get the generator. They took the generator, but the crowd stayed listening to drums, banging drums all night, drum jam. And but the frequency party in 1995, April 7th, I think it was was a major moment in radicalizing this, the dance community that Vibe Tribe was attracting, which, was a, which sort of helped set the scene for Reclaim the Streets, which was one of the biggest urban sort of revolutions starting in the UK that really did well in Australia, had loads of Reclaim the Streets and, and taken over whole intersections with no police permission, just people power, uh, starting to bring together different issues, uh, anti-war, you know, the, the roads, roads, urban planning shouldn't just be about cars all the time. So Reclaim the Streets, starting in about 97, going for a good few years to about 2004. Um, I think it helped shape some policies, like this Sydney opening night festivals took a cue, I think, from Reclaim the Streets and shutting streets down, putting stages in streets and having music in the streets. Uh, but Reclaim the Streets started off um, not too bad with the police, but ended up with you know a riot, like, like in Erskineville, the police horses charging the crowd and stuff. So yeah. Reclaim the streets consequently died down a bit, but it's had resurgences um, in more recent times. Uh, mm. The West Connects um, protest, and uh, who knows, it might come back again. But to, uh, to go back a bit um, to the music, yeah. you started talking about you basically inspired by old punk, and then mm. really inspired by the process of sampling, yeah. which came essentially from an album mm. that's, that's you know genre-wise, it's considered yeah. hip hop. Yeah. But then you were the music you were producing really was like more acid house. Yeah. And then, but then elements of punk and hip hop and everything well, came into it as well. The acid yeah. house kind of beats, the techno was the canvas, to, and then the samplers. We always loved sampling, and, and the sampling reflects the sample collection reflects our musical taste. Like I love reggae, and I love punk. Um, so you know, we we could mi mix punk and reggae samples in 
just do a bit of preparation, make the loops perfect so they'll fit in, in with the, the rest of it. So, yeah, the beats was the canvas and the samples were the paint often. And, and, yeah, yeah. and then the spaces this music existed in, Mm. Um, you know, with, with all the events uh, you mentioned, mm. there's generally not, except you mentioned Horton Pavilion, but I'm not sure, if, was this before it was kind of an official venue or? Oh no, Horton Pavilion was already. Was 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 I, I went, like late 80s, I mean 88, 89, I went to the Horton, some Horton parties, fun parties, Bacchanalia, rap parties. And there, it just was an eye opener, the first hearing sort of acid house music. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it was a beautiful um collection of different scenes mixed uh, at the, those Horton parties and that's when Australia was number one, one of the number one night spots in the world because mm. um, you know England was having its summer of love but Australia was already the, big, the main predominantly gay big parties at the Horton became inclusive to, to everyone so there was a real cultural fusion and mixing um, and you didn't know what music to expect there so, you know, anything could go down from hip hop to acid house and you know to funk yeah, um, and then when you started performing, like your music, uh, you know, the Jellyheads and all mm. these, I mean, they generally weren't playing in conventional commercial venues, were yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, the Jellyheads was after the Hordens, I mean, the local residents, I think, got together, they shut, the Horden parties got shut down, just as the rave scene was hitting from the UK. A lot of it was like a cargo cult, it was like UK DJs coming out, oh yeah, we can make some money here and, and put it on. So, some weren't just commercially motivated, but some were. So I think Vibe Tribe was part of that local scene, Clan Analog, was another one um, of um, it was more of an Australian take that led to the, the whole bush doof thing. Australia, different crews came together, Club Kooky, um, with an Australian take and more of Australian involvement and not just the UK people coming out and showing us rave. It was more coming from Australia. Um, and Vibe Tribe was part of that. And the venues were more underground or illegal, warehouses, beaches, you know... Um, because with all this mixture and new sounds coming mm. in, I'm, I'm, you know, there wasn't really an infrastructure there, or there wasn't. It would have been hard to to find a space to to perform in. Yeah, so you had just had to take a space. You had to sort of make a space. That's right. Yeah, and just like um, little Kongwong Bay Beach in 1994, you had to lug the PA across a whole beach, rocky headland, and back to another beach, and that was an all-nighter that went amazingly well um, into the next day. And things like that. I mean, those, they're just legendary events, you know. Um, um, and the Sydney Park parties before that, they got shut down. But um, sometimes non-bossy posse would get booked for more other other sorts of events, not legal ones as well. Um, but yeah, like yeah, in a club or something. Yeah, yeah. different clubs and warehouses. But um, yeah, it was a it was an amazing the way uh, the music melded with with a anarchist politics and then reclaim the streets gave it direction to show okay that we can actually ta take space here and get people out of the dark nightclubs and warehouses into the open streets in the day and um so yeah often um <coughs> once the streets were claimed though there was a side of it where well, now what do you do so you know, people drinking and you know piles of people on the floor drunk and stuff maybe that's not the, the best way to go but um you know, they were an amazing thing, and I think they affected Sydney in a, in a really positive way. Mm. Mm. And then, of course, um, the other thing, if, you, if you're playing in these more, like, unconventional spaces or the spaces mm. that you're making, mm. you're also responsible for the sound there, so that brings in a sound system yeah. of some <coughs> description. So can you tell us a bit about those early mm, well, sound systems? I mean, Jellyheads had a sound system, a small one, that was kind of, that we were using that. It was not loud enough, for maybe for 200 people. <coughs> that was a collectively owned sound system that through fundraisers... Like commercially, commercial PAs that they, they bought, or how, how, what kind uh, of, how would you describe? There was Aladdin Sound at the time, and they was, that was Ben, uh, Guy Clive, brother of Ben Clive, um, and that was a big Serwin Vega sound system, and that was, we, we would hire that one out for Vibe Tribe parties. And then um, the Hendrix and this guy Gastro from the UK put, made a bigger sound system, and that was used for a bit. I think that ended up being split up, I think, different people. Anyway, that had a run. So, yeah, I mean, the idea of run, uh, running and owning sound systems um, is something that, you know, w w helped develop the community around uh, around that music, around the ideology and the, the non-commercial, you know, the Vibe Tribe had this philosophy of, you know, nobody is the star, everyone is a star. The focus wasn't on the DJ. It was the crowd was facing each other more, not just facing one way and um, a healthy sort of... Um, anarchist sort of dance environment, you know, of a non-hierarchy, yeah. So, and, and, and in your case, did you also own a sound system at some stage? Back, no, not then. I never, oh. I, I had a couple of speakers and things, but I never owned this myself. 
until um, I start, and still the wheelie bin sound system thing started happening <coughs> uh, yeah. around 2009. And I ended up with all of these hi-fi bins knocking around. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so then in, in, in the earlier years, then it was it's basically somebody that you were that you knew would yeah. have a sound system they were willing to and lend they were and, uh, and people hire out. sort of associated with the community of the scene who were down with what we were doing and they weren't you know they, they wouldn't charge an arm and a leg and it, you know uh, so they the people the Aladdin sound system was very much run by people who are our friends um, in the scene who would sometimes use their sound system for commercial rave events but sometimes for underground parties and even free the Newtown techno tent in 94 uh, 93 94 um, that, w that run for quite a few years at Newtown Festival, which is now um, not happening anymore. They didn't survive COVID. <laughs> yeah, one, but, yeah. Um, we used to run techno spaces at there for many years. Yeah, and and uh, I mean all all these events and all this um, your experience of talking about it spans like three decades. So mm, yeah, if you feel in, in terms of the sound system, the focus on that. Mm. Um, did they evolve in some shape, or do you feel like the first sound system you would have used back in the late 80s, early 90s, mm. you know, it's kind of similar to what you're using now? Is there some sort of evolution, I guess, or do you think it's, it's uh, just yeah, I mean, the way it sounds or any other details? Um, I'm not sure how to respond. I mean, this <laughs> it's a big question. We were hiring the, the actual, what the, the way the sound systems looked, I don't see it's changed too much. I haven't really followed the technical side of it. I've got myself involved in 12-volt PAs and sound, and I'm slowly building that up over the years. But um, Well, that, that is an evolution, I guess. Yeah. You've gone from the big, big yeah. we need a lot yeah. of power for those early sound mm. systems to, to something actually smaller. Well, and, the wheelie bin sound systems are modular. You can just have one, and that's quite loud and enough for a few people, or you can have two, or you can, wire them, you can hook them all up with a pirate radio thing. And I've got some subs now that this guy Lee Russell made. He was in Jungle Punks. He makes his own subs, and these subs, I said, will they work with a 12-volt car amp? He said, yeah, and they do, and I've, I've ordered one online, and they run really well. So they're not bin, so the only part of the Sunny Bin Sound System that's not bin related is these two subs, um, and everything else. I've got a skip four-wheeler sound system, and Flat Max has made a brilliant crossover. He, he's a, a doctor of sound, and he's just made great components, and everyone always comments, you know, AV people... They see music in bins, they think, oh, it's maybe it's a bit trashy, but no, they said the sound is actually next level, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it's, um, I mean, have you reflected on that, this, this, this transition of like having to have a big loud sound, like you were saying, like mm. the Jellyheads mm. sound system wasn't loud enough actually for what they yeah, needed yeah. at the time because it was just for 200 people. Mm. And then you come into the wheelie bean sound system, which is a lot smaller. Yeah. I mean, I've always, like when we did the, we, before channel parties, there was these convergence parties, I think around 2005, six, where we'd just take over an area and set up multiple sound systems. Some people, the system corrupt were involved and um, other sound systems um, tampered, um, OMS not bombs, this is the OMS not bombs era. Um, and there was, uh, yeah, I found sometimes at these events, maybe there was six sound systems and maybe only 500 people. I'd have a small sound system, but a little sly bar and, and stuff. And it, we'd get the biggest crowd because people could talk and socialize. And sometimes it's, if there's not many people and you're running a massive PA, it's just, oh, you know, the people, what's the point? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've often felt that you don't need to blast people away, if especially the crowd's a bit smaller with a huge technoval style sound system <laughs> always. Not to knock it because there's a time for that. And there's, with, when there's thousands of people, you need that. But um, often the small social kind of sound system with other things happening like a bar or food is, it creates a beautiful environment of people talking and stuff. Yeah. So I've got another big question that, that mm. sort of spans 30 years. Mm. Uh, in terms of like music production, when you started out heavily sampling, yeah. or, or you started out performing, I guess, um, mm. just playing live, not yeah. really recording initially, yeah. how would you sort of describe how you've evolved as a music producer from mm. when you first started using those machines yeah I mean at first it was samples and then I as I went on uh, getting machines drum machines and like the 303 and 202 synthesizers the Rollins I've learned a bit of programming and a bit of music I've never known music theory I can't read music you know but I go by what I think sounds good so making you know bass lines and being able to sequence a bit uh, off, you know, that sort of side of it I've slowly built built up and I use Ableton Live a lot and a laptop and I've I recently uh, during the lockdown Crass, uh, the band, the punk band that inspired me way back in 84, Stonehenge Festival. Uh, they released the stems of their first album, which I remixed, all in Ableton Live. 
um, and then made a vinyl and Steve Ignorant, the singer from Crass, shared it on his socials next minute and shipping vinyls to the UK. And uh, um, so, yeah, that was... In, that so, was so that's kind of your most recent music production, yeah, I guess, the Crass. Yeah, the, the, the Crass... I, so I produced three vinyls and a CD um, and the, the Crass Remix Project is, is was sort of 2021 and um, still sort of flogging the vinyls now. And, um, yeah, Monkey Mark mastered it, so it's got a nice punch to it on the vinyls. Uh, and... I think it was quite successful just listening to the to the crass stems and trying to remix them but not make it so you don't recognize it like you people who hear the remixes they oh yeah that's you know band from the roxy i, I could recognize that song but he's technoed it up or jungle yeah. and techno and punk is, is the sort of fusion there uh and yeah that, that i think that was my most successful musical project as far as far reach to the uk and um quite a bit of interest there so yeah i do really like remixing just headphones, laptop, you know, late at night, get, get the kids again to sleep. I've got an hour. I'm just going to put my headphones on. I have the simplicity of a laptop and, and make some beats and things. Mm-hmm. So, of, of course, what happened between, um, well, sampling, is it? Mm. And then you went to the Crass album, but it's obviously mm. probably about 15 years in between where you were yeah. also doing yeah. music. What, what, how would well, you the describe? Um, I guess you had different phases, yeah? Yeah, like in, I think by about 2000 and maybe about 2004, I'd not very good at looking after gear. All my old analog gear had broken and cover- it taken to too many forests and covered in mud. And so I pretty much sold and got rid of them and, and just went laptop for many years. And that was then the Uberlinga kind of... That's when Ableton you started using. Yeah, Ableton. I started using Acid, a program called oh, Acid. Acid. Um, yeah, and starting to just make laptop music and all that early kind of remix stuff, remixing The Herd and, um, and some Arabic. So I went to the Middle East and got inspired by Arabic music in about 2007 and started just making these sort of Arabic beat mashups and things. And then Uberlinga came along and Brendan Palmer's project, um, which was really putting a focus on global music, multilingual hip-hop, and, and that inspired me. So I started still in the laptop, just making remixes and some global stuff, gypsy beats, and and just also amassing a vast collection of music to DJ at the Uberlinga parties. And it wasn't until the beginning of the first lockdown where I, I, th- I said, I'm sick of the laptop, I want to get some hardware again. And that's when I built up this crazy mobile studio that we played, uh, it was a part of Organicy last night, um, which is Behringer clones, the 906730, because I can't afford the real ones anymore. <laughs> but they do the same thing. And then a bit of modular, with the help of um, John Jacobs, I got into some modular stuff, so like some effects and dub sort of effects and things and more bleepy sounds. So yeah, I've, um, I've got this this studio that I put, it all breaks down into a box and I can roll it into a gig and set it up again and, and people always think, wow, look at this, it's like two big racks that, um, and you can see all the gear. It's not flat, so I'm not hunchback at Notre Dame when I play music, I'm, I'm playing like a wall of, of all of the easy, easy ergonomic to access and, and to, to change and stuff. Uh, so last night I was, we're playing with Rob Joyner and John Jacobs. John Jacobs has got a full modular setup and Rob Joyner bought his MPC. And um, we were just jamming it. It was a bit messy at times, but we got there, in, you know, halfway through, we started finding our groove and, and jamming, you know, yeah. So in a way, it's, um, you've sort of gone full circle, you think? Or uh, yeah, it is a bit of a full circle thing. Now, I still use Ableton a lot, um, sometimes to make the loops that I then feed into my modular um, uh, sampler, which is a bitbox, which goes along with a sequencer to all the beats and stuff. So... I prepare samples in the computer, send them to the modular live rig, hardware rig, and then um, we rec- on my mixer I can record the channels of all the band members so I can use Ableton again to, to remix the stems of the live recordings back to something that's a more of a, something you'd release, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And um, do you feel yourself, well, the way that you're approaching all that um, analog, or some mm. of it's digital, but yeah. made to sound like analog, yeah. all of the physical, the hardware, I should say, mm. is your approach to it different now to, to what it was when, when you first would have got your hands no, on it in the early 90s? Like tweaking live and, you know, it's just starting to feel the music live and to, to be able to, I like about the analog stuff is you don't know where it's going to go. It could go anywhere, whereas with a laptop preparation, okay, it's really planned and you know it's this and that. But when you're running these machines, it's like a spaceship. Like when I play music, just me, it's called Grumble Morph, and that's the name I've used for the Crass remix. And I, I refer to my studio as the Grumble Morph spaceship because you take it for a spin, and then you don't know where it's going to go necessarily. Uh, and that's what's exciting about it—not not knowing uh, and hitting new territory on the fly and going with it. You know, 
yeah. trying to capture a certain mood. But then, uh, of course, um, you did you did record the the Crass Remixes um, mm. album, but most of the production you do, I guess, is more for the the live experience, yeah. With yeah, Rumble more. When I'm working in the computer, I try to make it sound like it's li you know live hardware sort of experience, you know. Um, try and have a bit of that chance, you know. Sometimes when a mistake happens, it's a good thing, and you just go with that. And sometimes I use hardware machines to record into. Um, into the Ableton project for the, to make the Crass uh, remix thing, but mostly it was just Ableton. But um, once I'd finished that project, it's done. It, I, I really wanted to concentrate on the live stuff and using those machines again and feeling the tactile, the real knobs, you know, and, and, mm. and having going to a gig with no laptop, you know, just so the boxes like last night. Yeah, because, you, because you're definitely more excited. Or it sounds like you're more excited about well, just doing the live thing mm. rather than like some locking something down yeah. you know, for a release on a, on a, on a, yeah. on a record or, or a bit, on a yeah. digital release. Like so. I, I, I have done another, since the crash thing, I've done another load of remixes of punk and reggae stuff that I, I want to, I'm not sure where I stand about with copyrights. So I'll probably put it on Bandcamp for free or have it as a fundraiser for Addy Road um, Community Centre in Sydney, which is where the crass, um, the fun, uh, profit from the crass release is going to Addy Road who um, during COVID they're distributing food packages to communities who are really affected and it, now still to this day they free nights of um, free medical, free food and things. So Addy Road Community Centre is a fantastic uh, place for, for help, helping out those, those in need uh, and a great community centre and they're very, I do some of their screen printing as well and um, so yeah, they, get, they get donations from the records um, when they sell as well, yeah. Mm. Um. And and where does uh, DJing figure in all this? Because you obviously DJ a lot as well. Yeah. Like, sort of differentiate between your production well, and your DJing. When I'm activity? a lot of times with Sunny Bins, I get booked for sort of family-friendly outdoor council events. And in these cases, I um, I play the world music stuff. You know, global. Some of it's not electronic. It's just African beats or cumbia. And this always goes down really well. Like if I went to where's that music coming from? <laughs> Not sure. I think Claire's chasing it up. Anyway, um, Claire's running. If I went to a council dog show, where I get booked with Sunny Bins and playing hardcore jungle techno crass punk. You know, I guess that get get out of here. You know, and there's a time for that, and I love that. But with these events, I also <laughs> love the global beats, the world music, and it, that that's where that's sort of part of the Sunny Bins thing. You know, um, I do the sound system for the vegan markets once a month. Um, and um, sometimes I, I drop sets there and it's sort of world music and yeah, people, people just, their ears prick up, different people uh, who, who is one of the Colombian coffee stall just loves it when I play the cumbia mm. and stuff. And, and I mean the wheelie beans, uh, they are very striking just mm. like when you look at them, mm. uh, you know, and of course they sound great. But um, for you, what does, what does the sound system communicate apart mm. from obviously the music it's playing? This is something else well, beyond that. It's the visual that, cue. I mean, the, the fact that it's a bin, it's kind of hilarious, you know. It, it's low brow. It's not, it's, anyone can relate to it. It's funny, you know. And, you know, people still put rubbish in it. I've had to, I've got a, I've had a bin at Sydney Park Kiosk um, near where my studio is. And it, they've had a bin there for 10 years and I've changed parts and I get free coffees there for maintaining it. And the dogs piss on the big bass speaker. And I reckon that's what kept that bass speaker going for, for 10 years is that the dog's uh, piss has turned into varnish and just strengthened it from the elements. <laughs> and, uh, but people do, I've had half a coffee poured in the top and it goes into the amp and destroys the amp. But I get on Facebook Marketplace, 50 bucks, get a new amp, stick it in. And, it's, you know. mm -hmm. and the solar panel on the top um, keeps, keeps the battery charged a bit, but um, they use it a lot. They crank it at Sydney Park Kiosk, so they need to charge it overnight as well. Sometimes they leave it on, switched on, which drains the battery. So I get a, I've got a contact who gives me secondhand deep cycle batteries. So I just put another one in. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, when you take a bin to the street, you know, the kids love it. Um, they all go up and sort of touch it and stuff. And uh, it just kind of creates a bit of a stir. If it was just a speaker there, oh, who cares? It's a speaker, but it's a bin. And it's bright colours. And it's, some of them have got characters. Like we've got the panda bin here today, which has got the wooden cutouts around the speakers in the shape of a panda. There's the... The cockatoo cranker, which looks like a black cockatoo, with the speakers in the body and the beak and the and the eyes and stuff. So um, Greg Archer, who is part of Sunny Bins, he's moved up north now. He was really into making every bin an animal uh, character. Um, some of them weren't. Some of them were just like normal speakers. But you know, a Willie Bin sound system is a curiosity 
that attracts attention and uh, and you, you know the Sydney Park kiosk they have a, you have a Bluetooth receiver in the bin and that they have a cafe they play from their Spotify playlist through the bin and there's no wires and things so that mm. that works pretty well. Yeah. Do you think there's also some sort of ethos that it communicates? The sound system ethos, potentially. Um, well. It's about recycling, you know, recycle music, recycle culture. Maybe we need a proper recycle. We, we don't need so many bins taking rubbish to landfill. We need a proper recycling industry, that a circular economy, and then maybe all the spare bins could be turned into sound systems to bring music to the streets, which is a good cultural tonic for people to to have um, music, you know. The whole um, fusion of protest and party is where I've existed, like, and Oms Not Bombs and particularly after Vibe Tribe was more, was political, but not so overtly, whereas Omsop Bombs was in response to the nuclear industry. We went around Australia, and then Earth Dream happened. We went with Earth Dream as well, taking music around Australia, traveling in buses and sound systems. Uh, um, where was I going with this? Yeah, <laughs> you were talking about the ethos behind the wheelie bins, which yeah, is obviously okay, a, yeah, um, it's a culmination of probably 30 yeah, years of ethos-driven work. But driven it's about work. taking music to places, to interesting places where you wouldn't normally get music, you know, where with a bin you can just wheel it somewhere in a park, whereas if you had to set up a normal PA, it's a hard generator, blah, blah, blah. Or even, or even a, a big sort of, well, a rig sound also, system. Yeah. It's showing sustainability in action. Uh, there's a solar panel on the bin. Many people haven't been so close to a solar panel. They can see it. Oh, it's running a bit, so this possible that this small piece of energy can be just sustainable, you know, and uh, the fact that the bin, yeah, it's funny and... Uh, it, so know, it's very accessible, but then mm. it's got these bigger messages behind it as well. Yeah, it yeah, it, it talks about recycling, it talks, you know, it's funny and it's, it's unusual to be able to take music to places it wouldn't normally go and to be able to walk with music, you can walk with like many parades, you know, the bins have been hired for Mardi Gras, the Paramasala Festival where different people were had their music in the bin and they're rolling it down the street and there's a big dance troupe dancing to it. So good for carnival, you know, um, and the mobility. And anyone can relate to it. Everyone knows what a bin is and they can see what it is. Um, mm -hmm. um, a few years ago, I was doing Paramasala a few years and then um, they changed management and the new manager didn't like the bins. He goes, oh, can you do anything apart from bins? And I said, well, no, I do bins, you know. That's, that's how I get sound mobile and in the street and moving, you know. <laughs> And, and um, you, you mentioned, um, oh, I've lost a train of thought there. But, uh, <laughs> um, I was going to just jump, jump to, into another area yeah, right now, yeah, but uh, yeah. you did mention the channel parties a bit earlier. Mm. Uh, but you also mentioned there was a crackdown in 95 on the, I'm trying to remember Vibe what it was. Tribe? Vibe Frequency tribe. party, yeah. Frequency parties. Yeah. yeah, and then the Reclaim the Streets, there was a crackdown. And then I think channel yeah, parties came yeah, after yes. that? That's, channel parties were after that, yeah. Yeah. Do you so see these are cycles of a similar yeah, so thing? The they cramped yeah. down, and nine, by 95, the police knew what the rave scene was. They knew, and there was a bit of a panic. Uh, somebody died at the Phoenician Club re related to ecstasy, so they clamped down. They want to shut this thing down. No more raves. Vibe Tribe split up. People moved to northern New South Wales, and they had a bit of a party scene up there for a while until it, that got shut down by council up there too. Um, so that was... Then it went a bit more underground, and uh, around... 2000, from 98 to 2000, things perked up a bit because we had Earth Dream, but we took the sound systems away from the city. We went in the desert. We went up Alice Springs and protested Bev Beverly Uranium Mine and Jabaluka um, and all of that. So we, we took it away from the cities out to the wilds of the outback, you know, where the cops saw it as a curiosity and didn't really care. And this mirrors what happened in Europe when they shut down the criminal justice bill. All the sound systems moved to Berlin and Europe and Czechoslovakia where they were accepted. A similar thing here. And then when we got back from Earth Dream, not much happened for a few years. And then, um, and then the channel parties, I think from 2006, seven started coming back. And that was, now we had Facebook. So it was the similar vibe, free parties in massive warehouses, attracting all these people and Facebook and lots of young people. But it, at first it didn't have that safe care, care, everyone caring for each other thing. It was like, wow, let's, the kids, they never, they've never left home before. They go to this warehouse, let's start smashing things up. And, knocking windows out and stuff, you know. So, you know, we had, had a work cut out for us trying to stop danger happening and luckily no, no one got hurt, but uh, we were considering putting out flyers to try to spread these, the, the vibe from the previous generation that, you know, care for each other, empathy, you know. Um, but, but I think people got it in the end and channels went, channel parties went from 2006 to about 2010 in, um, mainly in that bracket and they were, they were wild, you know. We had 
live band stages, a drum, big DSS sound system, drummer bass rig, loads of, and it was, because the scene had fractured from initial, rave was just one thing, you know, and it fractured into drum and bass, techno house. But the channel parties brought them all together again. All the with their different sounds. Yeah. Yeah, the fract they all had their own areas, you know. And, and, you know, there was times when the cops turned up and we were really good at police liaison. And we'd talk them through, we'd walk them through and say, look, it's safe. You know, we better keep them here rather than send them out in the middle of the night. And, and that was good and it worked out well. But then um, channel party, I think there was, a res there was one in 2014 down in Botany, um, which was like the resurgence then, of, you know, four years gap. And that one at midnight, the police came and just completely just cleared everyone out and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I guess um, it, essentially what's happened there is like a rave, but it's not a not just a one particular type of electronic mm. music. It's like a whole mixture yeah, of music. Yeah, and to live bands. I mean, mm. there were that well, the sort of regenerate um, people, um, the Jollywood. We did this thing at Pete's Ridge Festival, Jollywood, and there were some great live bands uh, in the same kind of... Um, unity of purpose as the techno and the drum and bass and and it was all like that's what happened channel parties there was a proper band stage and a truck that you know the whole band's programmed all night you know all different styles funk and um you know weird sort of post-punk stuff and all sorts yeah and if you if you bring all those all that experience you have mm. with various waves of, of kind of mm. a similar thing happening of all mm. these tribes coming together yeah. is that a way of describing it yeah, yeah. um is, was there a reason or a trigger that made this happen do you feel this um, was it a reaction of something was or was it what was it why did a lot it happen of, uh, it was pretty recession kind of times mid-2000s a lot of empty warehouses and people would ring up oh we want to hire the space oh no it's shutting down okay it's getting demolished all right so this place is getting demolished let's do a let's do a party just to you know before they demolish it so I think one or two, six, there was one at a Gore Hill near the old ABC studios. That mm. was really Channel One, I think that was called. But, but I guess I'm wondering if, if the Channel Party is compared, if there's, if there's some, you know, compared to the earlier Reclaim the Streets, compared to Vibe Tribe, mm. is there something in common amongst those three, like Just these sort of waves of... of, of I mean, the I fact know, that what the call word of mouth and, the, and the just, there's a renegade, there's a party on it, it's free... I think, you know, like Reclaim the Streets was free. Vibe Tribes weren't always free. There was sometimes $10 to get in, not much more than that. But I think it was people just realised this is not... People aren't on the make here. People, this is a community development kind of thing and they, they, could, they knew what to expect when they got there. And they, people would go to one, they'd tell their friends, Next, pe more people would come. Um, but with the channel parties, everyone was starting to make their own sound systems and bring their own sound systems together. It was getting bigger and bigger. At one stage, I think it rivaled the technical scene of, of Europe, um, Sydney, just for a while there, and then it got kind of shut down. And um, it, given the right circumstances, it might rise again. But also people like myself, you know, you settle down, you have kids, it's hard to do mm. so many all-nighters. <laughs> so you hope that another generation comes um, next to do it again. And I hear now, my friends of mine whose kids are 17, they're doing un parties under tunnels and around Sydney. Cops are onto it, though. So there is a bit of a... Le, you know, late teen gen who are doing free parties again. So it's great to see that it's continuing like that. Because sometimes I think, where, where's the next lot doing it? You yeah, know? and we're gonna we're gonna be chatting in some later sessions mm. uh, here at, um, to some some of the some of the new crowd as oh, well. Oh, you've you've got some. And okay. um, yeah, so so I, gu I guess just to sort of summarise that again, mm. those those research like those um, surges. Mm. It's like it's a sort of happen. There's they're like waves. They sort mm. of happen. I guess people find the community builds and mm. then it just becomes so big that it becomes like this anarchist yeah. thing and then the authorities clamp yeah, down on it. it gets so big, like a victim of its own success. It mm. gets so big that the authorities are aware of it, they clamp down and then people... Disperses oh, again. Uh, you know, sound systems... Now, here, now, the 17-year-old uh, events and stuff, the cops are taking sound systems and maybe they get them back later. They never did that back... In, we always managed to hold on to them, but... There's more repression. Yeah, so... Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it almost feel like we need to brief the cops. Look, this is community building stuff. This is this is good stuff. You don't need to treat it like it's so evil, you know. It's about like the reaction yeah, we need to on. Set on out a write something and send a circular to all the police. You know, I think that's. But it's probably also a new generation of cops as well. If you think yeah, about it, because they're true, generally yeah. quite young. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you know they freak out about drugs and stuff, and you know, drugs exist everywhere, not just at parties. They're all you know offices and stuff. Uh, and the best thing is harmonisation, you know, mm. um, it's going to happen, but don't, you know, like by 
freaking out and having a war on it, it's not really going to get us anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I think that's a really nice way to <laughs> aim. We'll have a musical interlude. Okay. And uh, there will be more talks coming. Thank you, Peter. Nice Thanks, Moses. That was good. Yeah. I'll pick those still there.
I'm not going to be able to get the best. 